You're listening to Vatican Radio. In this week's edition of Gospel Truth, the late Jill Bevilacqua and Sean Patrick Lovett bring us readings and reflections from the Gospel of St. Mark, chapter 1, verses 14 through 20, for the third Sunday in Ordinary Time. After John's arrest, Jesus appeared in Galilee, proclaiming God's good news. This is the time of fulfillment. The reign of God is at hand. Reform your lives and believe in the good news. As he made his way along the Sea of Galilee, he observed Simon and his brother Andrew casting their nets into the sea. They were fishermen. Jesus said to them, Come after me, I will make you fishers of men. They immediately abandoned their nets and became his followers. Proceeding a little further along, he caught sight of James, Zebedee's son, and his brother John. They too were in their boat, putting their nets in order. He summoned them on the spot. They abandoned their father Zebedee, who was in the boat with the hired men, and went off in his company. There's a phrase in the first words of our Lord here quoted, which we hear repeated many times on a solemn occasion. Reform your lives and believe in the good news. Or perhaps worded differently, turn away from sin and be faithful to the gospel. Previously it was simply repent and believe in the gospel. The occasion, of course, is Ash Wednesday, and the words are spoken to each of us when we receive the ashes. And to remind us of our mortality, alternative words may be those formerly used on this day. Remember, man, you are dust, and to dust you will return. John has been arrested. His mission is completed. And although Jesus has been preaching in Judea for some time, and has already drawn the crowds and made disciples, now his distinctive style emerges forcefully. John had preached repentance, and announced that the kingdom of heaven was close at hand. Jesus, writes Mark, proclaims God's good news and urges people to believe in it. On John's arrest, we read in Matthew and Mark, Jesus leaves Judea and returns to Galilee. John the Evangelist, however, states, When Jesus heard that the Pharisees had found out that he was making more disciples than John, he left Judea and went back to Galilee. The Pharisees are powerful and could threaten his mission, which is still in its infancy. And his hour has not yet come. And as on other occasions, when he seems to be in a dangerous position, Jesus removes himself. And so, this time, he withdraws discreetly to Galilee. When the Gospels speak of the Gentiles, it's usually to distinguish them from the Jews, who consider them pagans. When St. Peter was sent to the centurion Cornelius, we read in Acts, The believers from among the circumcised who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. And St. Paul, the great missionary to the pagans, is still known as the Apostle of the Gentiles. And yet we read that when Jesus went to Galilee and settled in Capernaum, it was to fulfill a prophecy of Isaiah, who wrote of Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in the region and shadow of death. For the word Galilee means ring or region of the Gentiles, 
Galil, in Hebrew, meaning a circlet or anything round. And the area, we're told, was never entirely Jewish, even in early times. Writes H. V. Morton. Ten cities of Galilee were given by Solomon to Hiram, king of Tyre, as part payment for the building of the temple, and the invasion of the Gentile population continued in later times. When Jesus went to live beside Galilee, the western shore of the lake was dotted with a ring of towns and fishing villages in which the non-Jewish element was very strong. But what is significant in our travellers' observations is this, that Galilee belonged to the world of the New Covenant. To go into Galilee is to turn one's back on the arena of the Old Testament. By going into Galilee, Jesus performed a symbolic act. He turned his back on the world of the Old Testament, and from the moment of that turning away, the New Testament begins. The centre of the New Testament world is international Galilee, a country crossed in the time of Christ by the great military roads from the north and by the ancient caravan routes from the east. This busy international corridor was the place in which Jesus taught. He alone of all the prophets who had come out of Israel deliberately cut himself off from the theological stronghold of Judea and the roads he chose to tread were not the roads of the priests and rabbis but the roads of the world. And in a curious way, Galilee has crossed the miles and the centuries. If you go to Durham Cathedral in the far north of England, you may read this epitaph carved on a slab of blue marble. In this tomb are the bones of the Venerable Bede. The tomb is in what is known as the Galilee Chapel. A Galilee is a chapel or porch at the west end of a church, where in former times penitents waited before being admitted to the body of the church. It was also where the clergy received women who had business with them, and this last is significant, as we shall see. St Bede, who is best known for his ecclesiastical history of the English people, lived all his life as a monk in the monastery of Jarrow, where he died in 735. But in the year 1020, a sacrist of Durham, who was an enthusiastic collector of holy relics, while on a visit to Jarrow, removed Bede's remains to Durham. There they were placed in the tomb of the great St Cuthbert, whose biography Bede had written. Then, in the late 12th century, they were encased in a silver shrine and finally reinterred in 1370 in the table tomb in the Galilee Chapel. But while Cuthbert's tomb is at the east end of the church, Bede lies at the west. For in 1175, when Bishop Pudsey started to build a Galilee as a lady chapel, behind Cuthbert's tomb, strange cracks appeared in the walls. It's said that the bishop took this as an omen that Cuthbert did not want a chapel even to the Virgin so close to him, for Cuthbert was said to be a woman-hater. A more prosaic explanation is that at that point the rocky ground sloped downwards and the site proved too difficult. For the city of Durham stands on a rocky promontory, 
a bold peninsula of rock, the guidebook puts it, and is almost encircled by the River Ware, the great Norman cathedral towering above its banks. And so the Lady Chapel, the Galilee, was built uniquely at the West End, and so close to the ravine that it couldn't have a West Entrance, writes David Edwards in The Cathedrals of Britain. The new chapel was large and light. Originally, it was a mass of colour on walls and in windows. It was at the disposal of the bishop for ceremonial or business purposes, and the monks used it for the finale of their Sunday procession, which symbolised the risen Lord's triumphant return to Galilee. If there seems to be a feminine touch here, that's right. It was a church for women who were warned by a line of marble in the nave floor to go no nearer to St Cuthbert's Shrine. The celebrated art historian and authority on English architecture, Nikolaus Pevsner, has this to say. That it was called the Galilee and had an altar of the Blessed Virgin is certain from a charter datable to 1174 or 79, but by the 14th century the bishop's consistory court was held there, an arrangement which continued until 1796. The story that St Cuthbert was such a misogynist that he was disgusted at the idea of admitting women to the east end of the church probably covers a more serious dispute between monks and bishop. It is true, though, that a line in grey local marble in the floor of the nave just west of the main north portal bay marks how far women were allowed to penetrate into the church. There doesn't seem to be any explanation for the name Galilee given to these porches or chapels, but remembering Galilee of the Gentiles, I would hazard that it was a way of suggesting the place where second-class citizens, penitents and women, were confined. In our Lord's time, after all, Galileans were not exactly considered the creme de la creme by the pure-blooded Orthodox Jews of Jerusalem. You're a Galilean, they said to Peter when he stood in the court of the high priest's house after Jesus had been arrested. It's obvious from the way you talk. And just as non-Jews were called pagans or Gentiles by Jews, so the word Galilean was used later by the pagans as a contemptuous name for Christ and Christians. Thou hast conquered Galilean, were the supposed dying words of the Roman Emperor Julian, known as the Apostate. Like many famous last words, they were a later embellishment. But the Victorian poet Swinburne caught on to them and used them in his hymn to Proserpine. Thou hast conquered, O pale Galilean, he admitted with some reluctance, for he was a modern pagan and priest-hater. Yet thy kingdom shall pass, Galilean, he trumpeted, while at the same time crying like a deprived child, Wilt thou yet take all, Galilean? Poor, sad Swinburne. Pale Galilean, pale pagan. But let's follow the Galilean as he walks by the lake, the Sea of Galilee. Sea? Well, any large expanse of water, more or less enclosed, we read, can be called a sea. But this lake, or sea, has several names. 
The Hebrew one is the Sea of Chinnereth, derived from the name of the most important town on its shores in the Canaanite-Israelite periods. But as the name resembles the Hebrew word for harp, kinnor, it gave rise to the idea that the name had been given because of the shape of the lake, wide in the north and tapering towards the south. H. V. Morton calls it heart-shaped. Another name we know is Genezareth, used in the Second Temple period, and quoted by Luke, whereas the Talmud refers to the Sea of Tiberias, after the town founded by the Herod of our Lord's time and named after the Roman Emperor Tiberius. As the largest freshwater lake in Israel, it's the country's main water reservoir. Thirteen miles long and about seven miles across at its widest part, the lake is some 700 feet below sea level. Lying in the Jordan Valley Rift, it has a subtropical climate. There are hot mineral springs along its shores, lush vegetation, and last but not least, plentiful fish. Hardly surprising then that Peter and his brother became fishermen. But as we know, they were not always successful. And fishing from a boat, often at night, is not the leisurely occupation of the gentleman fisherman who sits by a river. The effortlessness of a spinning reel, one quick flick of the wrist and your minnow sped away, whispering and silky and nimbly laden, it seemed to be all rise and shine, the very opposite of uphill going. Irish poet Seamus Heaney. And in another poem he calls Casting and Gathering. On the left bank, a green silk tapered cast went whispering through the air, saying hush and lush, entirely free, no matter whether it swished above the hayfield or the river. On the right bank, like a speeded-up corn crake, a sharp ratcheting went on and on, cutting across the stillness as another fisherman gathered line lengths off his reel. Moving their arms and rods, working away, each one absorbed, proofed by the sounds he's making. When one man casts, the other gathers, and then vice versa, without changing sides. When H. V. Morton went for a day's fishing on the Sea of Galilee, he observed that the nets used were evidently the same kind as those mentioned in the Gospel. Circular and a very fine mesh, weighed down on the outer edge by dozens of small leaden weights, they are flung by hand. And he recounts just how it was done. One of the fishermen girded his garments to the waist and waded into the lake with his nets draped over his left arm. He stood waiting, as if watching for a movement in the water. Then with a swift overarm motion, he cast the hand net. It shot through the air and descended on the water like a ballet dancer's skirt when she sinks to the ground. The dozens of little lead weights carried the bell-shaped net through the water, imprisoning any fish within its area. The fishing nets used on the lake are of three kinds, the hand net, or shabake, the draw net, or jaff, and the floating net, or mbaten. The first two are the most popular. The hand net is used all over the lake, but the draw net is employed chiefly in the Jordan estuary at the north end. What kind of net Peter and his mates used, we don't know, but the fish, when they caught them, were almost certainly mushed, or comb fish, 
the characteristic fish of the Sea of Galilee. It's a flat fish, about six inches long, with an enormous head and a comb-like spine that stands up along its back. It's also called St. Peter's fish, for legend says that it was from the mouth of this fish that Peter took the tribute money. The calling of the first four disciples is recounted by Mark and Matthew in almost identical fashion. Peter and Andrew are casting their nets. James and John are mending them. Luke, however, describes a different scene. The fishermen have gone out of the boats and are washing the nets. And as the crowds are pressing round Jesus, he gets into Peter's boat and teaches from it. And there follows the familiar episode which Luke tells in his inimitable, masterly fashion. Let's hear it again in the old version. Now, when he had ceased to speak, he said to Simon, Launch out into the deep, and let down your nets for a draught. And Simon answering said to him, Master, we have laboured all the night and have taken nothing, but at thy word I will let down the net. And when they had done this, they enclosed a very great multitude of fishes, and their net broke. And they beckoned to their partners that they were in the other ship, that they should come and help them. And they came and filled both the ships, so that they were almost sinking. And here, Peter's reaction to the miracle is particularly striking. For it's not the first he's seen Jesus work. But fishing was his life, and such a miracle would have impressed him in a special way. Something in this particular marvel hit home. As one writer puts it, he suddenly saw Christ for the first time, and seeing Christ, he at last saw himself. Depart from me, O Lord, for I am a sinful man. Fear not, is the gentle reply, and the strange prophecy, from henceforth thou shalt catch men. And having brought their ships to land, leaving all things, they followed him. All things, fish included. <laughs> 